Good evening, Alma Stone. I'm excited to be here with y'all tonight and share with y'all a little bit about the topic of spiritual warfare as we continue in our series, Alamo Stone at the Movies. So tonight, we're going to start out talking a little bit about the movie Wonder Woman and kind of use that as our launching point. And then we're going to dig into the truth of God's word. And we got a lot of ground to, to cover here. Um, so if you haven't seen the movie, a little background. Before she became Wonder Woman, Diana was this princess of the Amazons, this secluded group of warriors who live in Themyscira, this like secluded, isolated island, this like bubble of paradise, like beautiful weather all the time, totally isolated from the world. And like outside their little little bubble around the island, there's this like cloud of like darkness shielding them from the outside world. And these these women who are living there, the Amazons, they're these highly trained warriors, but they're living in this like peaceful, secluded isolation. Uh, but in the world outside, there's this terrible war that's going on, this raging war. And Diana's mother, the like queen of the Amazons, Hippolyta, doesn't want to get involved in the outside world. So she wants to keep her group all safe and secure from their enemy Ares by remaining secluded on their island. They train themselves in combat and all of them know their purpose, that they were created by their God to protect mankind from Ares, the God of war. But they isolate themselves and they stay on their island while this war is going on fueled by the influence of Ares. And so despite their living in isolation, hiding from the world, eventually what happens is war comes to them. War comes to the island. And at that point, they can't hide anymore. And so Diana takes on this role of Wonder Woman, this like protector and defender, right? And so she leaves the island and joins this American spy to go fight in uh, the war. It was, it was World War II. And she joins the allies in this mission. But her mission is not trying to defeat the Germans. Her mission is to defeat Ares, who she is convinced is actually behind this world war that's going on. So obviously, the premise behind this movie is totally ungodly. It's based on pagan mythology of the Greeks and Romans. So it's chock full of deities. You got Ares, you got Zeus, you got Diana. So I can't endorse it from like a spiritual truth perspective at all. But there's some aspects of the storyline that I think we can kind of relate to, kind of connect to. And this thing is just, I think I'm backwards. Maybe this will work better. Um, so first, we have this group of highly skilled, highly trained, equipped warriors appointed by their god to fight and protect the world from this, uh, this enemy that like transcends the, spirit, the, the physical world. There's this like other being, Ares. And you know, that's, that's their mandate, is to like, go out and protect people and, and, and like, attack. But they refuse to do it. They're not proactive. They're like hiding out. And I see the church in America at large is full of people who are fully and highly equipped. They are believers in Jesus. They have the Holy Spirit of God within them. So they're equipped for spiritual warfare. And they're highly trained. They know their Bibles. They know how to pray. But a lot of times people either don't recognize the intensity of the spiritual war that's being waged all around them, or when believers are confronted with this reality of spiritual warfare, they don't really know what to do with it. The second parallel that I see in the movie is that in the movie there's this physical war that's, that's going on, World War II. And this war has led to so much pain, so much suffering. There's been countless deaths of soldiers and civilians alike. There's so much suffering that's going on. But Diana and the Amazons, they see straight through that. 
And they immediately recognize the true enemy is not the Germans. It's not any one like, particular country or, or group of people. The enemy is a spiritual one. The true enemy is not the people. It's the enemy, Ares, who is like, bringing all this like, fighting and destruction and causing people to hurt one another. And so we, likewise, live in a world where there's hurting, where there's people who hurt one another, there's injustice, there's conflict, where there's, the casualties are countless, they're innumerable. But the mastermind behind all of this is not a person, it's not a human, it's not someone with flesh and blood. Scripture tells us in Ephesians 6.12, and I can't really read it here, but we'll get to it later, um, that we, wrestle, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we're gonna spend the next two weeks looking at this subject of spiritual warfare. This week we're gonna be focused on the war and how it affects us as people. And then next week we're gonna go into more depth on the enemy, how he operates, and what we should do about it, right? In our study of spiritual warfare, we're gonna be blazing through a ton of scriptures. So I got them all up here on the slides. Um, if uh, you're trying to jot down the references and you're unable to keep up, don't worry, I can get you the slides, I can get you the references later, but we're just gonna like boom, 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 right through it. Um, so before we dive in, let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we just thank you so much for loving us. We thank you so much that you died to save us. Lord, we thank you that um, you are our strength and our shield. You are our protector and our defender, Lord, that you are the one who fights for us. Uh, Lord, we thank you that you are greater than any enemy that we might face. Um, we pray, Lord, that um, you would just open our eyes to the truth of your word. You would open our eyes to see your strength and might and power at work in and through us. And uh, Lord, we ask that um, you would just speaking, be speaking through your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So, our first principle to look at, we're, we're gonna look at a couple of principles. First, that we're at war, that our war is spiritual, it's not physical. We're gonna see how the spiritual world connects with the physical specifically in ourselves as people. We're gonna look at the injuries that people suffer in this spiritual war. And then finally, we're gonna see how we as believers were in this war together. So our first principle to look at is that we are at war. Now, I'm not just saying that there's a war and it's like taking place and it's like kind of out there. I'm saying that we ourselves are individually directly involved in this war. Like it or not, heaven's at war and one way or another, we're gonna be on a side. There's no middle ground, there's no neutrals, there's no conscientious objectors in this war. So how did it all start out? Well, Revelation tells us, now war arose in heaven, and Michael and his angels fighting were fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So this war has been going on long before humanity was on the scene, and is going to keep going on until Jesus returns and puts an end to it. You know, as an American citizen, I have certain responsibilities. So if the U.S. declares war, as a citizen, I have certain responsibilities. I've got to be registered for the draft. And so there's a possibility that I might be called up to serve. If I were a member of the military or the reserves, then there's a very real possibility I might be deployed to go take part in this war. And so us as believers, 
our citizenship is in heaven. When we trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord, we become citizens of heaven. We're no longer aligned with this world. We're no longer aligned with the enemy. So we have a similar obligation to take part in this war that is already going on in heaven. It's not optional. It's an obligation. Second Timothy tells us to share in, uh, in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So our position as believers is more along the lines of that of someone in the military as a soldier. We're called to, to be as good soldiers, more so than as a civilian who has this like kind of remote possibility of like, yeah, I guess I could get drafted, but nah, I don't. So um, in Second and First Timothy, we see this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So there's this warfare going on, and we're commanded to, to actively take part in it. And rejecting this, this responsibility to wage the good warfare, Paul says that this is something that has caused shipwreck of the faith of some people. In 1 Peter, we're told, be sober-minded, be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We're called here to be watchful. We need to be aware of the war that's going on around us. We need to be aware of the enemy's activity, of his tactics, so that we can do what? Resist him. If we're not being watchful, we're not actively resisting him in the firmness of our faith, we're liable to be one of those that get devoured as he's prowling around. That's what he wants to do. Our enemy is watchful. He's gathering intel on us, and he's looking for a prime opportunity to strike us. Now, as we dive into this topic of spiritual warfare, I want us to remember the words of Jesus to his disciples that he was telling him uh, when he was telling them about his impending arrest and execution. He tells them, I said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So as we look into this reality of spiritual warfare, we're confronted with the reality that there's going to be tribulation. There's going to be hard things that happen. But in Christ, we have our peace. Despite the warfare that's going on around us, despite how difficult it is, we know with certainty who has already won the victory. Jesus has overcome the world. So our second principle that we're going to look at is that this war that's going on is primarily a spiritual one. Again, the Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we've already established we're definitely at war, but our war is not against flesh and blood. So we're not warring against humans, against people with physical bodies. We're involved in a spiritual war, and there are real, actual, spiritual beings, persons that are warring against us. Now, this verse, let's, let's not be confused about when it says the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're not talking about like, oh yeah, there's these spiritual forces and they're kind of like out there in the heavenly places, but it's okay, we're in our like little physical world bubble island, like, no. So, and in case you missed it in Revelation, 
when Satan was cast out of God's presence in heaven, where was he cast down to? To the earth. Uh, here in Job, um, we see that Satan is given an audience to give a report, basically, to the Lord of what he's been doing. So the Lord said to Satan, so from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. So we see that he's going to and fro on the earth. That's where we are. Ah! So Satan and his forces, they're not in some like far off, like other dimension, like spiritual place, isolated from our physical world. Nor are they currently confined down in hell. They're on the earth. They're warring against us right now. Second Corinthians tells us that though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So since we're in a spiritual war, it makes sense that we're not going to be using physical weapons to fight in this war, right? So the weapons of our warfare are, are spiritual. But not only that, but they're not of the flesh at all. So we as people do not innately possess the ability or the strength to fight this enemy, this war, on our own. It is only by the power of the Holy Spirit within us that we're able to fight against our enemy. And we are so totally able because the Holy Spirit of God is so much more powerful. So our third principle is that the spiritual world, like I said, it's not this like far off distant place totally separated from the physical. There's, there's a connection, right? And as we look at ourselves as people, there's a spiritual component to us and there's a physical component to us and they're connected, they're related. First Thessalonians says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So looking at this verse, we can kind of see that people are made up of like basically three parts. We have our body. The Greek word is soma. And so that's the like physical, material, physiological, biological, tangible part of ourselves, our flesh and blood. That one pretty straightforward. The next word that's used is soul. The Greek word is psyche. So that's our mind, our intellect, our will, our desires, our emotions. And then the third part is spirit. The Greek word is pneuma, which also means is the same word used for wind or breath. So our spirit is kind of this in immaterial, intangible part of ourselves. It's the part of ourselves that allows us to interact with God on a spiritual level, enables us to pray, participates in worship, helps us uh, or allows us to understand spiritual truth that can't be discerned just by our, our own rational minds. So here's an interesting question. Why did God create us with three parts? Why not five? Why not seven? Why not 12? Why not one? Well, I look at how God created us in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. That's from Genesis, right? So we're created in God's image, and we see that God has revealed himself to us in three persons that are distinct, but they're also one, right? So Jesus, he's the person of the Godhead who entered the world. He had a physical body of flesh and blood. And he always would refer to and submit himself to 
the will, the mind, the desires of God the Father. And finally, there's the Holy Spirit, who is immaterial. He's spirit, and he comes to dwell within us as believers. Three persons of God, a parallel to how God has created us, with a body, a soul, and a spirit. Now, some people like to look at the soul and the spirit are like basically the same thing, or that the soul is defined as the combination of a body and a spirit put together, you have a soul. You know, it, it really doesn't make a big difference, but if you look at Hebrews, um, it says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, of discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so it talks about the division of soul and spirit. So there's definitely some kind of distinction between the two, but they're also very closely related. Just like our joints and our bones, our marrow, are very closely related, they're close together, right? Just like our thoughts and our intentions are closely related, they're close together. Now, whether you think of ourselves as being two parts, a body and a soul spirit, or three parts, body, soul, spirit, really doesn't make a big difference, but I'm gonna come from the perspective of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. So, how do these all fit together? Well, not only do our soul and our spirit, they're closely related and they kind of interact with each other, but they also interact with our physical body. Our mental and emotional state has a direct effect on our body. So take, for example, the stress hormone cortisol. Isn't it crazy that you can actually empirically, scientifically measure how stressed a person is by the level of a chemical in their bloodstream? Oh. And on the flip side, things that are happening to us in our physical bodies have an effect on our soul and our emotions. Just think about like um, our hormone levels, our neurotransmitters, certain medications or drugs, they can yield emotional responses. So just think about like the last advertisement you heard on TV for a certain medication and the whole list of side effects. A lot of physical side effects, but usually there's also some side effects of like, oh, that's, that's not a physical thing, that's not just my body. So there's, there's definitely a connection. And this interrelationship of our tangible, physical, flesh and blood body with the intangible parts of ourselves, our soul and our spirit, it's a well-known thing, right? The medical community gets it. Even if they don't fully understand maybe how they're related, they know that there's a correlation. So I'm not gonna go too much more into it, but I did a quick Google search on scientific publications on the relationship between our emotions, part of our soul, and our body's physical well-being. So in the journal Health Progress, there's humor's healing potential. Clinical Journal of Oncology Nursing, The Impact of Humor on Patients with Cancer. Uh, a couple of books, one by Greenwood Press, The Deadly Emotions, The Role of Anger and Hostility and Aggression in Health and Welfare Well-Being. Pearson, Mind, Body, and Health, The Effects of Attitude and Emotions and Relationship. Both our mind and our body together. So, okay, that's what the world, the world knows there's some kind of connection, right? And they're writing papers and books trying to figure it out. But what does scripture have to say on the subject? <laughs> we see in Proverbs, a man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? So scripture's already told us this, that a healthy spirit has some kind of a role in enduring and recovering from physical illness. But what about an unhealthy spirit? A joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. So definitely some physical manifestations of spiritual health affecting a person's physical health either as good medicine or as drying up the bones. But, you know, these are proverbs, so is this all just kind of like metaphorical and allegorical? You know, is there like a real 
physical and spiritual connection, or is this just kind of like, uh, it's just proverbial. Well, let's look at this one. First Corinthians. Whoever, and this is um, talking about uh, taking communion, the Lord's Supper. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some of you have died. So this one sounds pretty concrete, right? Taking communion in an unworthy manner without first examining our hearts, considering Christ and his body and blood that were shed for us, leading to physical weakness, illness, and in some cases even death. On a more positive note, there are three different occasions recorded in the Gospels where Jesus uses the phrase, your faith has made you well. And so there's this definite example of this spiritual state of a person's heart, believing in Jesus, having a profound effect on their physical bodies. Um, they're probably too small to read, but uh, the first one is the woman who had the issue with bleeding for 12 years. She goes to touch the hem of his garment. He turns around, he touched me. He says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Then there was a time he cleansed the ten lepers, and they all run off, and they're all happy. And one of them's like, wait, I should go back and thank Jesus. And Jesus says, you know, has anyone returned, has no one returned to give praise except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And then there was the blind beggar who's like, son of David, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. And he says, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he recovered his sight and followed him forth. So this spiritual war, in this spiritual war that's going on, it's important that we're aware and we're mindful of the fact that we ourselves have a spiritual component, but that all three components of ourselves, our body, our soul, and our spirit, are interrelated and affect one another in very real ways. Now, in a physical war, obviously, there are physical injuries that happen, right? Since we're in a spiritual war, with a real enemy who means us real spiritual harm, what does it look like? What does spiritual injury and what does spiritual sickness look like? What does it look like to be spiritually unhealthy? Uh, well, if we boil it down to the root problems, there's really four kind of major categories of issues that lead to spiritual unhealth. Sin, believing lies, wounds, and the effects of oppression and affliction by the enemy, which can be summarized by the word demonization. We're going to look at the first three tonight, and then we're going to wrap up, and so we'll save that last one for next week. Sound good? So the first one is sin. That's the first of the four kind of major categories of issues that can lead us to spiritual unhealthiness. And it's kind of an obvious one, right? Sin is going to make us unhealthy. When God created Adam and Eve, there was no sickness, there was no weakness, there was no illness, physical or spiritual, because they were in perfect fellowship with God. They lived in that fellowship without sin. But then, when sin came into the world, so came along pain and sickness and death. Now, we know that God is good, that he loves us, and that his will and his desire for us is for our good. Romans 7 tells us, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. 
For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be sin, shown to be sin, and through the commandment uh, be shown, uh, might become sinful beyond measure. So obedience to God promises life because his commandment is holy and righteous and good. But when we sin, it produces death in us. Now, through Christ's work on the cross, the eternal consequences of our sin have been paid for in full, completely, for all time. But when we sin, it causes us harm here in this life, right? Uh, degrading our spiritual health, and it can also degrade our physical health as well. Now, it's really interesting to look at how this idea of obedience and disobedience is reflected in the Old Testament. So looking at Deuteronomy, Moses speaking to the people, he says, See, I am setting before you a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I'm commanding you today to go after God, other gods that you have not known. Now this word blessing, it refers to God's favor and the promise that he is actively at work for the good of that person, that activity, that thing, whatever is under the blessing, right? A curse means exactly the opposite of that. It is the lack of God's favor. It's the absence of God's favor or even his direct disfavor on that thing. And the promise that God is either actively working against it, or at the very least, he's not working for it to make it prosper, so it's just kind of kind of fall apart on its own, right? If you look at the chapters uh, 27 and 28 of Deuteronomy, the whole chapters are listing out all the blessings that would come upon Israel for obedience and all the curses that would come upon them for disobedience. When we walk out from under the protection of God's law, we're walking out from that safety of protection and of blessing. We're, we're walking out of the boundaries and entering into the realm of, well, if we're not under his blessing, what are we under? Curse, right? And it brings harm on us in our body and in our soul and in our spirit. What I find really interesting to look at, especially interesting to look at because it's, too, it's all too often overlooked or at least misunderstood, is the effect of sin across the generations. In Exodus, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Of course, our own personal sin brings us harm. But also the sin of our parents, our grandparents, even our great-grandparents, has a lasting impact on us through what you might call ancestral or generational iniquity. It comes to us through our ancestors, and it tends to carry down the generations. And the, that mark of sin, that iniquity across the generations, carries along with it a generational curse, being outside, not under God's blessing, his favor, his protection. Now, we've seen 
that God has promised that with obedience comes blessing. His hand, his favor can be upon it. When we walk out from under that protection, when we disobey, when we pursue sin, we're walking out of the realm of blessing. We're walking into the realm of God's curse. And we've seen how God gives us his law because he loves us, right? He gives it as a means to warn us, watch out. There's death that way. Don't go that way. I can't bless sin because it falls under a curse. So that's what God is promising here, that the iniquity of fathers brings a curse, a lack of his blessing on the children. In the Gospel of John, Jesus and his disciples have a little bit of a dialogue about this, of like, can this, this idea of visiting the iniquity of the fathers have an effect on someone's physical self, a physical ailment, specifically blindness? So the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, notice what Jesus does not say here. He doesn't say, that's ridiculous. God wouldn't allow someone to be born with a physical ailment because of something their parents did. Doesn't say that. He doesn't say, well, you know, it's actually kind of a common misunderstanding. You know, this whole idea of generational iniquity and curse, it doesn't work like that. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said that in this particular man's case, he was born blind for the purpose of God's glory, because Jesus was going to demonstrate his healing power on this man's life. So our own personal sin, as well as the sin of those who have gone before us generationally, leaves us spiritually injured and carries with it a curse, a lack of God's blessing that, left unchecked, can affect us in our spirits, in our souls, and even in our bodies, right? So aside from leading people into sin, one of the key tactics of the enemy is to bring us spiritual harm by getting us to believe lies. Why? Well, that's just who he is. Uh, Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees, tells them this kind of scathing thing of, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The enemy wants to get us to believe lies. Lies about ourselves, lies about others, and lies about even God himself. Every good and wonderful promise that God has for us, that he's given us in his word, the enemy wants us to doubt it or to reject it. Or at the very least, he wants to pollute it and distort it and pervert it so that what we're believing isn't actually the truth itself. So just a couple of examples of the kinds of lies that can be particularly harmful to us spiritually. Lies about ourselves, that I'm worthless, I'm a failure, I'm a mistake, I'll never be free of this. I'm not a good leader, I'm not a good parent, I'm not a good spouse, I'm not a good student, I'm not a good child, I'm not a good, you name it. Lies about others. Oh. God doesn't like people who do that. God doesn't love them. Or all men are fill in the blank. All women are fill in the blank. Anyone that I get close to is just gonna hurt me, just gonna betray me, just gonna leave me, just gonna lie to me, just gonna, just gonna, just gonna, just gonna. Lies about God. God can't heal me of this. God won't forgive me of this. God doesn't love me. Yeah, God can use more people, but God can't use me. God isn't really good because he allowed this to happen. 
you can, can you see how some of these are really, really destructive, harmful, and damaging things for us to believe? And that's what the enemy wants. If he can get us to believe lies, it leaves us spiritually unhealthy, and it gives him a foothold. It gives him a beachhead to be able to launch all sorts of spiritual attacks against us. But let's consider this beautiful promise that Jesus made. Jesus said to the Jews that had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See here that Jesus starts with this idea of abiding in his word. And remember, we're in the book of John. The John, book of John opens out by talking about how in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who's the word? Jesus, right? So when he says that we will know the truth and it will set us free, the specific truth in question is Jesus himself. Remember John 14, 6, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So because of who Jesus is, because of what he has done for us, we know, when we know him as the truth, we are set free from things in our lives. Romans 6, 6 tells us that we're no longer slaves to sin. So to grasp like the, the really devastating effects of believing lies, um, something that I, I visualize, something that I imagine is a person who's like, this is like the perfect analogy right here. <laughs> a person who's in prison and he's like in shackles and in chains. He like can't, can't move, can't do the things that God wants him to do. He can't live the free and full life that God has for him. Then the person comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Every chain is broken, every shackle is unlocked. And so in one sense of the word, he is completely and totally free. He can walk right out of there. But what if he believes, oh, man, but this chain, that one's, that one's too thick. That one can't be broken. Man, these, these shackles, like, you know, I, I really deserve this one. That one doesn't deserve to be, to be broken. If they believe those lies, that person, even though they're completely free, right? The chains are broken, the shackles are unlocked, but if they think, oh, that's not really unlocked, that's still there, they're still not going to be able to move. They're still not going to be able to do the things that God has for them. And so even though the truth is this person is completely set free, or at the very least the keys to unlock the shackles on them are in their hands, they're still living in bondage because they reject the truth of their freedom that Jesus Christ has already bought for them. So what are we to do? Second Corinthians, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. When Ephesians 6 describes the armor of God in verses 17 and 18, it tells us the weapons that we're supposed to use in the warfare, God's word and prayer. So every thought, every argument, every lie that is set against the truth and knowledge of God must be submitted to the truth of God's word. The word has power to destroy every argument and every lie raised against God's truth. We need to be continually careful and watchful over our thoughts. Take them captive. Examine them against the Bible. And any thought that doesn't align with the truth, we reject it and we pray for God to replace that lie with his truth, to plant his truth in our hearts, to replace it. Colossians says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. 
lies that we believe in our mind as part of our soul have profound power to bring harm to our spirit. Believing lies robs us of the spiritual power and authority that's rightfully ours in Christ. He died to buy it for us. And when we, when we do that, it gives room for the enemy to work against us in ways that otherwise, if we were believing the truth, we wouldn't have any room to be able to do so. So the last issue that we're going to talk about tonight is the spiritual injury resulting from wounds that we receive in our lives. Now, there's a lot of different things that can happen to us in our lives that can leave us wounded. Things like betrayal, rejection, bullying, abuse, a deep loss, shock, and trauma. We saw earlier from this verse in Proverbs, a, spirit, a man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? Undergoing a really painful, hurtful experience leaves us wounded can even leave us wounded to the point of having a crushed spirit. And we know that the wounds that hurt us the most are often the ones that we receive from those who are closest to us. And when we're hurting, when we're wounded, when we're injured, that is when we are most vulnerable for the enemy to attack. And our enemy knows how to wait for just the right time to come against us. When Jesus was in the wilderness being tempted, that's what the enemy did with Christ. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Sometimes that opportune time might be right when the wounding experience takes place. But also, it's often the case that the enemy will take opportunity to come in against us long afterwards, after that wound has been really like good and festering for a while. One of the thing, two things that can come very easily with deep wounds one is believing in lies. Two, harboring unforgiveness and bitterness. Neither of these issues is just going to go away by itself. Neither of these is going to go away if we just let enough time pass because time doesn't heal. God is the one that heals. Psalm 147, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Again in Isaiah, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor or afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound. So we can obviously see God's desire is to heal us of our broken hearts. So let us bring our broken hearts before the Lord and ask him to heal us. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So when we ask for God to heal our broken hearts, we're asking according to his will. We've seen God heals the brokenhearted. Now, we've already talked about the dangers that lies pose to us. If the enemy has gotten us to believe lies about ourselves or others or God as a result of our wounds, we can ask the Lord to reveal what those lies are that are buried deep down in our hearts. And we can ask him to lead us in replacing those lies with his truth. The other danger, as I mentioned, with deep wounds is that it can easily leave us in this position of feeling like, you know, I just I can't forgive that person who wounded me. But when we hold on to that unforgiveness, we're in really serious danger because we are not obeying a direct command from God. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. 
Forgiveness isn't optional. And you know, it isn't even dependent on the other person seeking our forgiveness. In Mark, Jesus says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So we don't get to just wait around for that other person to like realize they're wrong and to repent and seek out our forgiveness. We're told to forgive proactively while we stand praying to God if we realize that we have anything against anyone. Right then and there, we're told to forgive. So if we fail to forgive, we're giving ground to the enemy. We're not walking under the fullness of God's blessing, because this is what he's told us to do, right? So if we give ground to the enemy, it's ground that he can and will use for our destruction. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about this next week, but in short, don't give any opportunity to the devil, whether it be through unforgiveness, of continuing to believe lies as a result of the way that we've been hurt, God can heal all wounds, but he's only going to do it his way, in grace, forgiveness, and in truth, believing the truth and rejecting lies. The fourth major category of injury that can lead to an unhealthy spirit is demonization, the attack, influence, and oppression, not possession, oppression, of demons. So we're not going to get into it this week, um, so you just have to hold on to that one for next week. But uh, we'll be looking more at these soldiers of Satan's army in next week as we focus on the enemy, his tactics, and how to fight that. Uh, for now, I'm just going to remind you that for those of us who are in Christ, demons don't have to be a scary or frightening topic. You know why? And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Like, a little bit greater? No, like immeasurably, way, way, way greater, right? What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could possibly be against us? Right? So we'll get into more of that later, but it doesn't have to be a scary topic. It doesn't have to be spooky. So finally, we're in this war together. We've seen we're definitely at war. There's no debating that. But it's a spiritual war. That the spiritual war directly affects us because we have a physical body, but we also have a soul and a spirit, and they're all connected and related and affect one another, right? We've looked at the four major categories of issues that leave our spirit unhealthy, that leave us injured in this war. Lies, uh, sin, lies, wounds, and we'll talk about it later, demonization. Um, so next week we're gonna look into more depth uh, on that last one, his tactics, what it looks like to join the fight, and to minister to the needs of our fellow believers who are under the onslaught of the enemy in this spiritual warfare. But we're in this fight together. And not just because we're comrades, we're fellow soldiers serving in God's army, which we are. But more than that, we who are in Christ are brothers and sisters. More than that, we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. As members of one body, if one is hurting, all are hurting. My hope is that tonight we've all got a little bit clearer understanding of the kinds of spiritual issues that the enemy is working against us in our lives. And then we're starting to see how those spiritual root issues can manifest themselves 
and other parts of ourselves that connect with our spirit, our thoughts, our emotions, our desires that reside in our soul, and even the physiology, the biochemistry of our physical bodies is also a part of this. So as for the application of all this knowledge, all this information, the so what, what do I do with all these facts and data? I'll let the word speak for itself. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. My brothers, if any one of you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, uh, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you're doing. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And we're in this together. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. So there's a real war going on. Let's not pretend like the Amazons in the movie Wonder Woman that it's something that's like far off and you know can't really affect us. It's not really like part of us, can't get to us, or that we can just hide out in our little bubble, like safe and secure from the world's problems. And let's remember our enemy in this war is not other people here on Earth. It's not the people who have hurt us. It's not some country pushing an anti-God agenda, the real enemy behind all these things is Satan. But praise God, we're not in this war alone. Not only do we have God himself dwelling inside us by his Holy Spirit, but we have our brothers and sisters in Christ fighting alongside us, by our side. We're in this war together, so let us speak the truth and love to one another. Let's uplift and encourage and exhort one another. Let's bear one another's burdens, and let's pray for one another. Lord, we thank you so much that although we are in a war and there may be tribulation, that we might have peace in you, for you have overcome the world. 
Thank you, Lord, for the community of the church, the body of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we are not in this alone, but that you have given us each other. We pray, Lord, that you would be with us, Lord, that you would be strengthening us. Lord, that you would be the one who would bind up and heal all of our wounds, Lord, that you would set every lie, uh, cast it out, and, and set our hearts on the truth. And uh, Lord, we just pray that um, wherever the enemy has led us into sin, Lord, that you would break the power of it over us, that you would lead us to freedom that we already have by the blood of Christ, so that we may walk in your blessing. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, for your truth, and we thank you, Lord, that you fight for us. In Jesus' name, amen.